I am consistently blown away by the multitude of nonprofits that exist in this country, all with the common goal of creating wellness in our communities. From new diagnosis, ongoing treatment, unexpected changes, transitioning off care to remission, or even end of life, there is care for everyone in your family at no financial cost to you. Incredible. Welcome to Wondercast, a community collaborative podcast supporting families navigating the complexities of chronic illness. Today, I am joined by Kate Mahan, Oncology Social Work Counselor at the Canopy Survivorship Center at Memorial Hermann the Woodlands Medical Center. Listen in to hear about the various programs the Canopy offers in support of families and the helpful tools for your own illness journey, shared by the incredible Kate Mahan. Cultivating wellness out of illness. Such important work. This is Kate. Hi, my name is Kate Mahan. I am the Oncology Social Work Counselor at Canopy Cancer Survivorship Center. And we are at the Memorial Hermann Woodlands Medical Center. I've been in the field as a social worker for 25 years, and I've been in oncology for the last 12. I've been at Canopy for about four years now, and here I am their clinical social worker, so I'm sort of their counselor and also your practical problem solver, helper, that kind of stuff. All the things. Yeah, all the things, yeah. We are really unique in that all of our services are completely free. We are open to the public regardless of where you were diagnosed with your cancer, where you were treated, what your insurance is, where you live. It really has a very open door concept, and I love that. It's really unique, I think, in healthcare. At Canopy, we're a cancer support center, so we focus on the health and well-being of anyone affected by cancer. And that means everyone, so survivors, their family members, friends, community members, It really is open to the patient and their entire support network. While we focus on serving Montgomery County area, which is the area just north of Houston, our doors are open to the public and we serve everyone who reaches us. We have so much to offer. You can think of it like a wellness center, counseling center, peer support center, and community center all rolled into one. Canopy does a lot of things that kind of look at many different areas of support. So there's physical support, which is incredibly important. And that includes Tai Chi, Pilates, yoga, and chair yoga. So we don't have to get down on the floor and be pretzels. We can do stretching from chairs. Peer support and professional support are also something we do a lot of. So there are support, general cancer support groups in English and Spanish. There's a group for cancer survivors of head and neck cancers. Um, There's one for survivors with advanced stage cancer, stage four. There's a group for caregivers. There's grief support that's led by our chaplain. Uh, There's widow support group. There's a monthly lunch for men. There's drama therapy. And there's virtual breast cancer support. And the newest one is we have a a virtual survivorship cancer support group for folks who are post-treatment because that return to usual activities is so important. Mahjong. Oh my gosh, we've got Mahjong clubs that meet twice twice a week. They have so much fun. There's needlework groups where people can come together, and there's so many cooking and nutrition events, lots of special events where people can come together and enjoy company, and it's not related to cancer. It's related to life and human connection, right? 
We offer a range of therapeutic services, and that includes meditation class, art therapy, pet therapy, creative reflections, which is an art class led by a local artist. There's also art healing art, which is led by our psychologist. There's individual counseling sessions, which is something that I offer. They're oncology-related counseling support for any adult going through cancer or their loved one. Um, We have a partnership with Wonders and Worries, which is incredible, and they offer support for children and teens from child life specialists who are incredible and available virtually and in person and are wonderful to work with. There's resources and assistance because I will tell you, often the things that are going on in our life are practical issues that we're trying to find a solution for. So we have that as well. And still in that practical assistance vein, wigs and hats and scarves are available. We do breast prosthesis fitting and mastectomy bra fitting. There's radiant wraps, which are these nice silky robes that you can wear as you go through radiation therapy. There is a healing meals program. We do this in partnership with HEB. Uh, If you are going through cancer treatment and cooking is not something you're doing right now, or if you're recovering after surgery, we have a healing meals program that can give you a free meal, like a family-sized meal. And we always have free meals in our freezer that are made by a local chef and can be available to, to take home and share with your family. Just these things that lift you up and help you as you're going through treatment and beyond. That's amazing. I wish that there could be a canopy in every city and every state. And me too. I know. Maybe one day, maybe in a perfect world. Are there physicians on staff with the canopy or is the oncology a separate thing? So we work in concert with really all of our medical community partners. We are located in the outpatient center for Memorial Hermann Woodlands Medical Center. So all around us, we're sort of wrapped around by a whole medical community with lots of different kinds of physicians. We have patients that will sometimes come over when they're in the middle of treatment. Um, We have right around the corner, like I can reach out and almost touch it, is our infusion center for the hospital. And so their loved ones will often come over while a loved one is being treated and have support at Canopy and have a a good resting place. It's wonderful. There are not physicians on staff at Canopy because our model is more biopsychosocial. We focus more on the support and not on the treatment care that's going to take place in the cancer centers. But we work not only with all of the Memorial Hermann physicians and all of their services, all of them, I mean, GI and neuro and supportive medicine. We have also the chaplains for the hospital are on our floor and often will come over and some of them lead some of our groups. They're available for support with their patients. Wonderful. But in addition, and I think this is important, because we're open to the public, we want to be able to interface and support with patients that don't just come to Memorial Hermann. So we have a little medical center north of Houston in the Woodlands area, and there are partner physicians from other hospitals that refer to us. We have also private oncology partners in the area who refer to us regularly, and we'll also come over and be speakers for some of our lectures. So it's a really wonderful community group where we're able to work together. When you eliminate the financial barriers, you eliminate a lot of the other partnership barriers. So it's a good center. That's incredible. And I love just the multi-tiered approach of all of that collaborative care. That is amazing. Now, 
when somebody wants to come to the canopy, do they have to be referred or can they just make a referral online or just come in? How does that work? All of the above. <laughs> we're open weekdays. So we're open from nine until four, Monday through Thursday, nine to two every Friday. And right now we're closed on the weekends. We may look at that in the future. But right now, when folks would like to come by, we invite you to come for a tour. We always have volunteers that staff our front desk. We're really largely a volunteer-run facility. We have three employees and over 50 volunteers. And they do, oh my gosh, they do everything from answer our phones, provide tours, give great education, help share information, offer support They lead our programs and our classes. A lot of them are also facilitating peer support, teaching yoga, doing the cooking and nutrition classes, doing breast prosthesis fitting. They do everything. So when patients want to come, they can come at their own time. A lot of times they will go see their doctor and their doctor will say, drop by canopy when you're done. No appointment needed. If you do want to call and schedule an appointment, they can call us. And our number is 713-897-5939. They can call, and if we're not there, we'll call you back. We can schedule an appointment, especially if you want to come perhaps with like a family group or with you know people from your community or your church or whatever group that you would like to come and bring. Often we want to bring our people who are going to support us through treatment so they can see what is available for them as well. And they can see also what is available to us. And I think it gives everyone comfort. If you do want to refer online, we have through our website for Canopy Cancer Survivorship Center. There is, if you scroll to the bottom, it says contact us and they can submit a contact us form. I receive all of them. I respond to all of them. So does our program manager. And she will be able to include you in our newsletter. So you'll get ongoing information. And that's how you can reach us. That's amazing. That's great information. And we will also link the canopy on our website. So that way they can find you through that way as well. So one of the things that clinically we talk a lot about and that the canopy clearly is representing is this concept of family-centered care and how we provide that collaborative care for the entire family. I think a common misconception in our chronically ill communities is that it's just one person that's affected and and the families can tell you and we can tell you firsthand that's definitely not the case. And that's why programs like the Canopy exist. Do you want to take a moment to kind of explain in your practice the way that you see cancer diagnosis or other diagnoses affecting an entire family unit? Yes, there's waves to this. And I think one of the things that's important to think about is that it is not a straight line. Anytime there's more questions than answers, there's often stressors for individuals and other family members. And so you're going to see that usually at the beginning of treatment, when we're learning and we're getting a plan in place, and then as we're adjusting to any changes, right? And that can be different things that come up during treatment. And certainly at the end, I think at the end, we often expect there to be this, oh, we're done and we're going to slide into the home plate. And at the end, we've been tired. It's been arduous. And often there are transitions and changes. Again, more questions than answers in the phases we finish treatment, go back into work, school, life, parenting. And so it affects lots of the family members in different ways. So I think let's talk about individual needs. And so as we sort out 
how the cancer diagnosis affects us in our own skin. So for the patient, I think certainly there's a lot of introspection and a lot of awareness of things that maybe we don't think about all the time. Our needs from each other as a family may change as we think and sort out how our roles and responsibilities are being affected. These changes are both big and small, and when they happen all at the same time, everybody's stress levels go up. I want to think about how our family has been affected in time when everyone has had a lot going on. Think back, because we've all had moments when there's been a fray of lots of activity or lots of stressors or something that's happened. Think about how you handled big stressors in the past. It can really help us to remember how we're all on the same team, because often we tend to, as we get stressed, we can be stressed with one another and it can create big and small conflict. So remember that we're all on the same team and all of us can kind of come back to that. Uh, We can consider what worked for us before as a family team. Do I need to shift my role? Do I need to do different things for myself individually or for the people around me so that we can stay stable as a unit? I think that that often helps if we're able to look at who is needing what on our team. Because if we help and support each other as a team and our compassionate and patient with one another as a team, we tend to not worry about each other as a team and it helps us go forward. Cancer survivorship and life activities are kind of pressed into the same time and space, by the way. They can require organization, having to pick our battles, let some things go, reach out to our support system, maybe in a way that we haven't done before. With so many changes going on, it can help to keep communication open. And I really want to stress this. If you have a regular forum where your family naturally talks together and comes together regularly, and this can be dinner table stuff, after faith-based practice, after baseball practice, on a beautiful day, maybe you hang out on the weekends together. But when you have a natural time that you're coming together, it's a good time that you can naturally kind of lean into a check-in with one another. You can open dialogue and give families a safe place to talk about what's going on, where they're welcome and encouraged to talk and ask questions. It can halt some misconceptions. It can dispel a lot of worry. It can help offer reassurance. And it really can help keep relationships strong because we're giving each other time to talk, right? And then last, if you do not have a system of regular communication, that is okay. Often in our busy lives, we're just rolling. We're getting stuff done. We're juggling. And so when this happens and we have to pivot, this is a great time to build that in and just consider what works best for you. Yeah. And we've heard so many parents say things like, you know, my teens just want to text me. And so that's kind of been our check-in. Is that enough? And we love that. Try to reach out to your children in their preferred forms of communication if you're able to. I think that's a great opportunity for control, for autonomy for our kids that want to have that connection, but maybe are uncomfortable sitting down in like a planned venue. It's okay if it's virtual. It's okay if it's a note or a journal or anything like that. We, we love that the focus on communication, however you can get it. So for our families listening that maybe are looking at a new diagnosis of some sort right now, you have some great advice for a new diagnosis. Do you want to touch a little bit on what you recommend focusing on? Sure. Here's what I want you to know. There is no wrong answer. If you find something that works for you, lean into it. I really, I think is a simple 
guiding tool, think of helpful, not helpful. If something is helpful and healthy, lean into it. So when you are faced with a new cancer diagnosis, it's so common to feel totally overwhelmed. This is brand new. For many people, it is the first time that they have received a cancer diagnosis, and there's a huge learning curve and lots of appointments and tests and places to go and things to do. And it really often competes with regular life. And I think that's where some of that overwhelmed feeling can come from. Just how am I going to press all of these activities into the same amount of time that I have every day? I think the first thing I would talk about is preparation and coping are so helpful. Often avoidance, which can be something we lean into, is not. So let's talk about that. Each of us has established a way of coping that's good for us. Like we run or we write or we paint or talk or play. It's helpful and healthy for you to lean into whatever your natural coping is. Sometimes we might seek some escapism. Escapism is different than avoidance. And so if you lean into a little escapism just to avoid for a small period of time something that feels scary, that's normal. We can lean into hobbies. Maybe we play video games. Maybe we watch movies. It's common for everybody to take little breaks, and it really does allow us time to process and feel emotionally neutral for a little bit. It's like getting off stage. That's good. Take a break. Take a nap if that's what you need to disconnect. If this behavior doesn't go away, though, and becomes our norm and is not taking a break, but becomes a substitute for what I'm going to do instead of dealing with what's in front of me then that kind of interrupts your ability to function. It interrupts your responsibilities and your relationships. And that moves into becoming an unhealthy way of coping. When we start to prioritize avoidance over the other things, it also creates conflict for other people. The escapism becomes a form of avoidance. And so escapism for breaks is healthy and okay. It's periodic. Avoidance becomes more of a norm behavior. And if it's something you're noticing, it's something you might want to set some limits on. We often think about avoidance as something I can safely dive into and, oh, I feel safe when I'm doing this because I feel emotionally neutral. But after a while, the tension and anxiety that we feel over the things that we are not really focusing on, and also the pressures from the people around us that they're experiencing and they're talking about us with, it becomes really exhausting trying to hang on to this avoidance that we're doing. And it generally increases our stress over time. And so preparing instead and taking those breaks when we need it and then coming back to it and dealing with the hard stuff sort of in bite-sized pieces lets us deal directly with the cancer diagnosis. And it lets us do problem solving along the way. So preparation can really help you out a lot. It also increases your sense of control and it can decrease everyone's overall stress. Choosing your battles, I think, is another big one. And it's a hard one. That's definitely a hard one for me. Man, for everybody. For me too, right? Life is really busy and we have lots of things that we're doing, all of the things, and lots of them make us really happy and where our identity is tied to them. Uh, we all have busy lives. And when cancer treatment is added to our plate, this creates a situation where we cannot do everything that we've been handling and we really have to make some choices. And some of those are really hard. And when we try to spread ourselves too thin, we often feel a sense of failure. We feel overwhelmed. It can become a really negative spiral. Think about what is important right now. What can wait and what can be delegated? 
it helps to think about it doesn't have to be no, I won't do this thing that I, I have to choose not to do because I don't have the time. But can I share this and ask someone else to help me with it? Can this be something I put pause on and I come back to? If it's important, you can prioritize it. It just becomes something that's not first. So choosing your battles can really help. Self-advocacy, I think we really have to comment on that. Generationally, you may notice differences depending upon when we grew up. How we relate to the medical community is really different for our grandmother versus our mother versus our child. You know, for a long time, the perception was, well, when I go to the doctor's office, the doctor's there and is in charge and is going to give me all the information I need and tell me what to do. And I'm going to go and follow that and go do it. And I can ask clarifying questions sometimes, but maybe I don't want to challenge. Or maybe I'm not sure what is okay to ask. Also, sometimes as kids, when we're going in, or teens, when we're going in, we may not, we may have been used to mom or dad kind of guiding that, and we're not sure what questions can I ask? What is my role here? So I think becoming a self-advocate, especially when we're dealing with a cancer diagnosis or any serious illness, becomes so important because they are your team, your medical group, your physician, your nurses, your dietitians, your social workers, they are your team. And so thinking of your healthcare team and that you have a role to play, that you direct and have choices, and that means that you have to ask questions and understand. Being able to ask those questions, learn more about what type of cancer you have. Ask what are reliable websites. I know often we're told, just stay off the internet. And that is good advice. And then we're all going to go home and get on the internet. You know, so tell me if I'm going to look, because I want to learn more, what are reliable websites that can provide good information, education, learn about programs and services in your area that support, you know, patients and their families, discuss changes that are going along as things are changing within you, small things. I have a small fever. I have a little headache. I'm starting to feel a little nervous. Mention that to your healthcare team so that they can partner with you and help find relief and resolve some issues as they come up. Very many patients, the consideration of getting a second opinion is something that they you know, feel kind of really mixed up about. If more information would be helpful to you making a decision, then that is available to you. You have many resources within your your grasp under your insurance plan. When you have a physician and they've given you treatment suggestions and you go get a second opinion, all accredited oncologists work within the NCCN guidelines. It's the same playbook. And so when you go talk to another physician, that accredited oncologist often reinforces what we were told the first time. And we can then feel more secure and more informed and more in control of our care. So be a good self-advocate. And one of the podcasts that we had an episode, we met with the chief oncologist at the START Center in San Antonio. And he shared that he expects his patients to go get second opinions, especially if you've been given the diagnosis of a late stage or highly aggressive illness. More information is key. Your precious life that you're trying to get all the information about. It's learning how do I consider that my needs are equal to the needs of those around me? And how do I ask questions and express what I need in a way that is polite and honest, but meets my need? 
we talk about self-care, I feel like that's very contemporary right now is this whole open concept on self-care, but it's so important, especially when you are on an illness journey. I agree. It's become kind of the hot new term. And really, it's just a really great oldie but a goodie. Self-care has always been important, right? I think as our lives become more stressful and more packed, it becomes more important. And that definitely applies when you've been diagnosed with cancer. Canopy does a lot to focus on self-care. We really focus a lot on staying active. Staying as physically active as possible during treatment and after is important for everyone's health, but it can also help you maintain strength and mobility. It's a great way to reduce anxiety. It's really excellent for that. It can be different for everybody. And so we have to work within our own limits and our own energy level. I really mean that a lot. There's a couple programs that are really excellent. There's one called Active Living After Cancer, um, and it's excellent for folks when they've finished treatment. It's part of the Kelsey Research Foundation, and they're available, by the way, for anybody. We partner with them, too. If I've finished treatment and my staying active means I'm working on standing and transferring from bed to chair, then that's what we're doing. Or I'm working on walking to the mailbox independently, then that's what we're doing but I might be working on the 10K or preparing for you know, some new race or something. And then that is what we're doing. And so they meet you where you're at and talk about, let's adapt and adjust what you need to help you get stronger and gain control. So staying active is incredibly important, whether it's going through treatment or after. Filling your cup is really important. Self-care A lot of time we give a lot of ourselves, and that is good. That's how we develop relationships. It's a give and a take. But learning how to fill your own cup is really, really important. When we feel depleted emotionally, physically, spiritually, you have to look for ways to fill your own cup. What makes you feel relaxed or peaceful? If things are really tough and I'm trying to reach for joy, sometimes I'm not going to get all the way to where I want to get. But if what I'm trying to reach for is peaceful, neutral, calm? What's going to give me a sense of peace so that I can have some restoration? Do you have a favorite cup of tea? Do you have favorite clothing that you wear? Maybe you have a favorite robe that just feels really wooshy, or you have great socks that you put on. Do you like certain music? Music is incredibly transportive. It's wonderful. It's great for anybody. Sometimes it's nostalgic. It brings you back and can kind of give you good memories and that is really restorative. Do you take a nap when you need it? I'll tell you, this is a big one. I have struggled with this. Taking naps often with adults is a huge, it's hard to give ourselves permission to take it and it's hard to find the time. But when you need it, it might be exactly what changes your day from being really tough to being, okay, this is a much better day. Yes, I love naps. Even just sometimes a short nap, a 20 minute, just reset. I agree. It's amazing. Or a hot shower or a bath, something to indulge yourself. I want to talk about permission to express your emotions too. In our culture, we are often taught messages that really stigmatize emotional expression. We might have been told to keep a stiff upper lip or to be brave and not cry. But when we bottle up our emotions, we usually feel a lot worse. Our feelings can tend to leak out into other areas of your life, like we can become irritable with our loved ones or emotional at work or school, what can really help is I encourage you to consider how emotions are a healthy way to express what you're feeling and thinking. 
when we share what we're thinking and feeling with our loved ones, it helps us to establish trust. It can lead to stronger relationships. It also demonstrates for them that healthy emotional expression is normal and allowed. And that gives a great model for our kids and our teens and our partners to accept and express that emotions are normal and healthy and allowed. And then it lets them look for healthy ways to express themselves on their own. So finding something that fits you and your value system, I just strongly encourage, give yourself permission to express. We talk about communication and we touched a little bit on that, but I would love for you to talk a little bit about what communication looks like to both yourself and others. Reacting versus responding. This is a big one. As people, we have thoughts and feelings. And when we're emotionally calm, we're able to think more clearly, right? We can choose our words. We can make rational decisions. When we're calm, we can make choices and decisions intentionally. However, when we're given big emotions, it's a lot harder to think clearly because they cloud our thought process. It's easier to automatically react with no filter based on our emotional state. So during times like these, when we often say things oh, that we regret, emotions are normal and they're going to happen, it's helpful if we can learn a way to notice our triggers. So noticing those emotional triggers, when we have big feelings coming up, it gives us a chance to find a healthy outlet or to take a break or even remove ourselves from the situation. It lets us restore our calm so we can be, again, intentional about how we're going to respond. One of the things we hear a lot from our families that we support through Wonders and Worries is when you are having big feelings or worries that you're holding on to, you would love to respond and you would love to have that follow-up conversation. But sometimes telling the truth to yourself is the first scary step. And I feel like it holds up so many people. Yes. I think that it's a very common thing in our society to say, how are you? But we're moving so fast, we don't have time to really stop and listen to the answer to that. We typically respond with, I'm fine. And when you're going through treatment, we're often tempted to hide our thoughts or feelings from our family members. The guise is that this is protecting each other. It comes from a good place. But when we hide the truth about how we think and feel from our loved ones, it usually increases our stress. And theirs, because they're wondering, how are we? Are we okay? It can create communication problems. It can feel like There's a big elephant in the room, and we're not sure if it's all right to talk about it. And when there's this lack of information, it can lead to assumptions. We tend to assume, oh, this is what's going on, or this is what they're thinking. And usually it's worse. What we're assuming is usually worse than what's actually the truth. So I think assumptions from the unknown can lead to increased anxiety and worry and kind of get us down a bad path. And instead, if we try telling the truth about how we think and feel, Even though it is hard, we deal with hard truths better than we do with false assumptions. And I think even for families that maybe are able to talk about their illness, but it's the day-to-day life, like maybe you are having a lot of worry about how you're going to pay for your next procedure and you have these medical facilities calling you or these, maybe you've put it on a credit card that you can't pay for right now and they're calling you. I think it's easier to avoid it or ex- even do escapism to avoid it and not answer that call and not return that call 
But I think there is the truth in saying, I'm going through a cancer treatment. I can't afford this right now. What are my options? I feel like just having that conversation and telling the truth in that way might open doors that you didn't know even existed. And I feel like that goes with what you were saying with self-advocacy, right? That is saying, this is the truth of what my situation is. Help me. How do I move from here? We live in a society where when when things are fine and normal, we get a mixed bag response from the public. But when we are having a hardship or going through a tough time, people like to help other people. We like to help other people. And so there is this hidden compassion in our society that often if we simply tell the truth about what's going on, sometimes you're so surprised by the kindness and the, the generous response or the ability to problem solve or be patient or think outside the box. When we're talking about major life events, and obviously this is not limited to just illness, but because that is both of our specialty and the areas that we work in, what tools for helping with coping that you see reflected a lot in the work that you do that's successful? We are wonderful at solving our own problems. And so usually when we've been faced with a challenge in the past, we've come up with some solution that worked best for us. So looking at that, anytime we're faced with a new challenge, it can help us to reach back in our memories and think about what worked for me before. Given time to practice, we're usually really good at finding a way through this. And when we feel overwhelmed, we might forget this. So just the simple thing of, what did I do before can help. Gratitude. This is a train your brain strategy. We have a negativity bias. We tend to lean into the things that are uh, negative and kind of disregard the things that are positive. And yet that trains our brain to kind of lean down and look down the negative parts of things and our mood tends to follow. So if we can train our brain as a regular exercise, think of it like a, you know, brushing your teeth, something you're going to do regularly. Training your brain to notice what we're grateful for helps us to stay positive as humans. We'll have good and bad days, but it allows us to remind ourselves what is important, what is meaningful, what is purposeful in my life. Mindfulness and grounding are really, really important. And mindfulness just really is about focusing on the here and the now. Because our body's always in the here and now, but our brain is often zooming around and looking in the back at what's happened in the past and maybe ruminating about how we feel about it or what we think about it, what it means. And, or we're forecasting and we're thinking about what might happen in the future um, and planning and preparing for that. And the busy brain is so common that when we're faced with a new challenge, we're trying to plan and problem solve. Um, and we're so focused on that, that our minds tend to find it hard to concentrate. And we might experience things like insomnia, or anxiety, or difficulty problem solving, just in the here and now, we might find it hard to be present with the people in the here and now. And might find it hard to enjoy or stay connected. Life is happening in the here and now. So with mindfulness and grounding, uh, while our minds are really busy with the past and the future, or our bodies are always present, mindfulness is the practice of focusing the mind on the present calm. We can practice this in lots of different ways. You can use grounding techniques like meditation. And I want to talk about that really quick. Meditation is so wonderful, but for so many of us, it's hard to practice, especially if it's something new. So there's a really great tool. There's lots of them 
apps are so cool now. Calm is one that's on the phone. There's one called Headspace. And Headspace actually is now a show on Netflix if you have it as a streaming service. Did you know this? I did not. That's amazing. Yes. So if you have Netflix and you're not a meditator, turn it on, try it out. There's lots of different, they're 15 or 20 minutes dealing with pain, anger, stress, insomnia, joy, all of it. There's wonderful tools that we can use to help us learn these new strategies. Breathing, meditative breathing is a big one. There's a wonderful app on your phone. It's called Breath Bubble. You can just search for it breath bubble and it looks like a clock and it gives you this nice timer it's like a metronome for breathing in holding it and then breathing out and just when we're nervous when we're anxious and our mind our busy brain is thinking about what's happened in the past or preparing for the future meditative breathing just slowing your breathing down because when we get anxious we start to breathe really shallow you want to go ahead and restore that Calm, using your five senses in any way is a wonderful way to practice mindfulness and grounding. And you might think about, there's some exercises, 333 is one. If you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling unable to settle, look around for what are three things I can see? What are three things I can hear? What are th- three things I can touch? It gives your brain something to do. It makes you focus on your here and now. I'll tell you, this is one of the things that most people find so useful if they're dealing with insomnia, which is incredibly common. Trying some mindfulness and grounding techniques before you go to bed because it's slowing down that brain and becoming connected with the here and now. As you're doing your bedtime routines, it can just connect you with, okay, I'm going to bed now and can help you to sleep a little bit better because sleep's so important. Okay, so for our last question, is there anything else that you wish to share to our listening population? Gosh, you know, I'm going to use a running analogy. I want you to think of cancer journey as a marathon, okay? Like anything long and arduous, it will require you to pace yourselves, take things one step at a time. Please trust yourselves to do what is best for you. Community helps. There are lots of ways to connect whether it's with family or friends or faith or local support or online programs, when in doubt, please reach out. 